From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, we'll follow up on Greg Bluestein's town hall conversation with Senator Joe Manchin and students from Georgia State University. Senator Manchin joins us live. I'm Tia Mitchell. As members of the U.S. Senate continue working on a bipartisan border security measure, House Republicans are already projecting disapproval and instead focused on impeaching the Secretary of Homeland Security. I'm Greg Bluestein. Nikki Haley continues to bait Donald Trump as she pins her hopes for a strong finish in the South Carolina primary. I'll have a report on a Haley rally in Greenville I covered over the weekend. And later, a conversation with Emory University professor of African-American studies, Pearl Dow. She talks about the powerful role black women play in public life today. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Tia Mitchell in Washington and Greg Bluestein, who joins me here in the studio. Uh, Tia, we're all heading your way. I'm very excited. In two days, we'll be in, with you in Washington. You are one of the chairs of a big congressional dinner, and we're all going to get to come up and join you uh, for that. Very exciting. Yes, it's very exciting. The Washington Press Club Foundation has our big fundraiser of the year, and it'll be a lot of members of Congress. We'll be hosting some members of Georgia's delegation, so it's going to be a good evening. Well, I'm sure you have a lot on your plate uh, as a, one of the chairs getting ready for that, so um, good luck in getting it all organized. Greg Bluestein, um, a lot of our listeners uh, may have seen the terrific town hall you did on Friday with United States Senator Joe Manchin and students from Georgia State University. It's um, if people haven't seen it, uh, Natalie Mendenhall just checked. It is on YouTube right now, so you can uh, search for it and watch it there. But it was a great conversation. And Senator Manchin is with us. But just say a couple words about how that town uh, hall went and then we'll talk to Senator Manchin live. We were so excited about it because we wanted to try something new. We've done sort of the pints and politics events around the state, but we wanted to try something that was with more interaction from students. So we had a number of Georgia State University students and others who asked direct questions to Senator Manchin along with me. And so it was really a neat opportunity for the community to hear directly from someone who could shape national politics this election. And who has been talked about as a potential independent candidate for president. And with that in mind, we welcome you uh, Senator Manchin to Politically Georgia. Just to give our listeners a little bit of your background, um, you have served in public life in West Virginia for um, many, many years. You're member of the West Virginia legislature, six years as governor, and you've now announced you're going to retire from the Senate uh, after 14 years. Um, you're a West Virginia native. You grew up in a coal mining town, Farmington. 
And your grandfather was an Italian immigrant who ran a grocery store in town. Lots of reasons why you're really kind of a grassroots guy, Senator. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I enjoyed my visit so much at Georgia State. I think the school was excellent and the students couldn't have been better. They were engaged. They were respectful. They were just so accommodating. But I think uh, informative. They knew what was going on and they had concerns and we uh, discussed those. So to all of you, uh, to Tia and, and, and uh, to you and Bill and, and, and everybody, I just appreciate so much keeping uh, involved in this political process. People are sick and tired of what they see going on. Uh, they're worn out. Uh, they just want some common sense and normality in their life again, especially in the political life, if you will. And I'm right with them. I like to have a little bit of normal, too. And so we're just trying to find that middle. We know it's there. Fifty five percent of people consider themselves more common sense and kind of central. Well, since, uh, but yet they're being pushed to the left and the right very far. Well, Senator, I, I know that you're asked over and over again about this question of whether you are going to mount an independent bid for president. So I won't ask you that right this moment. I'm curious about another aspect of this, though. You have said on a number of occasions, and you did tell Greg on Friday, that if you're, one of the most important aspects of your thinking about this is you do not want to be a spoiler. You said right. that you could never support Donald Trump. It's interesting that Brett Stevens, the conservative columnist for The New York Times this morning, mentioned you and Nikki Haley on a ticket together. And without regard to whether that would ever happen, I'm curious what you think about Nikki Haley's bid. She seems to be someone who might be more appealing to you, certainly, than a Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, politics has never tended to be the way it is now. It was never set up to be this divisive or make you have to pick a side. You know, there's only one side, the American side. If you happen to be uh, have a D or an R by your name or an I by your name, uh, that means you have different ways of looking at things and you bring different uh, aspects to the to the decision-making process. And that's how we have compromises that are all inclusive and seem to be who identifying who we are as Americans. We can fix the problem in a common sense way by having uh, having uh, discussions in an open forum and move on. And those are more lasting than they are if they're just shoved at you by one side or the other, because as soon as the other side gets any type of power, they're going to basically switch it back. We want something more consistent. That's why we are the United States of America and that we are the superpower. First of all, and Nikki Haley, I've met Nikki a couple of times. I do not know her. I like her more centrist stand from the grand old party, which a lot of my friends in my state and all over the country who I know very well, uh, they're missing that. And I think that's attractive to them. And that's why Nikki has kind of connected. Uh, President Trump, I worked with him uh, as close as I possibly could. Uh, it's pretty difficult. And I come to the conclusion that it would be very harmful for him to be back in that, the White House, knowing uh, how things are so uh, divided today that he would basically use the revenge or use the weaponize uh, the government to even divide us further. And I think that would be detrimental to democracy. So I said, I just love my country too much. But I understand there's a lot of, a lot of people in my state, especially West Virginia and around the country, that are attracted to that and support that. We just got to find out how do we bring it together to where their way of life and the way they run their life is not from the extremes. 
no one runs their life extremely from the extremes. It's my way or the highway. The other side's always wrong. That's not who we are. So with that, Nikki brings a, a freshness to the really kind of the coming back to the grand old party, the GOP, Republican Party, of who they've always been. And that's healthy. That's good. So people want her to get out early. I think that's wrong. I think she brings a lot of uh, uh, diversity uh, and basically common sense back to those people yearning for that type of politics. Oh, well, thank and you. So for- we'll see what happens. But anyway, I do uh, – I appreciate and respect anybody puts their name on the ballot. It's so difficult today. Thank but it's you. still a very small price to pay for the country we have. I'm sorry. I don't mean to step on you, but I appreciate that uh, thoughtful answer. Tia? Yeah, Senator Manchin, thanks again for joining us. I I know you mm-hmm. said you're not a spoiler, but I am a little confused, so I'm going to ask you flat out. <laughs> if Trump is the nominee and Biden is the nominee, do you run on a th- some type of alternate third-party independent ticket? I, I think, I, I think yeah, it's not that I'm, uh, I'm not answering that right now because— uh, I want to see the system work. I want to see us to bring the system back to the center, left, center, right. I think Joe Biden has been uh, pushed to the left or he's been led to believe that that's where all of the base is. That's where a very uh, loud, boisterous part of the base is. And we respect that. But it's not how we run our country. And it's not how he became president. He didn't be- become president because people thought he was going to really be on the far left uh, liberal side of, of the ball. They thought he came from the middle, knew how to bring people back together. That's what I would like to see. As far as March, I think Super Tuesday pretty much weeds it out. So to speculate now and say anything, there's still plenty of time. Only in America does the next election start the day after the last election. <laughs> My goodness, it just goes on and on, and people are sick and tired of this. I wish we were like some other countries that just said, listen, you got 90 days to make your case. Okay? The election starts this day, 90 days it's over or pick whatever period of time you want, but it's just absolutely continuous. And I know that's good for business from the media standpoint. I know they love it continuously to be talking about the next election. And I'll guarantee you, after the November election in 2024, the 2026 election will start the day after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Senator, on that note. I'm not going to jump in there. I'm going to wait to see. Let's wait till Super Tuesday, see what's available, see how far the people have been pushed apart, and see how disgusted they might be with the process, or if people start coming back to more of a sensible, reasonable portion of how we run our government, trying to find consensus. Senator, I love that point. And in some ways, this is Greg Bluestein, by the way, in some ways, the 2026 race has already begun here in Georgia, at least. But um, I'm curious (laughs) on that same note, what do you make of the drumbeat to drive Nikki Haley out out of the race? Because we've heard even from the Georgia GOP, which is ostensibly the state Republican Party, which is ostensibly neutral. They've already called on Nikki Haley to drop out of the race. President Biden has said the race is over. Donald Trump has said the race is over. And Nikki Haley is still in, in South Carolina stumping and campaigning, saying, hey, guys, it's not I, over. I don't think anyone should be driven out of, her, out of uh, a desire to serve. How, how, it, it's so hard to get people involved anymore. And now all of a sudden you want uh, people uh, that are in the upper echelon of the political system to start deciding who stays in and who doesn't, that's not their decision. That's the people's decision. That'll be the people's decision in South Carolina and West Virginia and every other place in this country. So anybody that has a desire and has the support to continue on to promote a message, and her message is much more uh, centrist than what we're seeing from former President Donald Trump, and this going and attacking each other every day. Tell me, I mean, we got to fix the border. 
The crisis of border is real. The finances of our country are real and serious. These are serious things. The uh, geopolitical unrest around the world is real. Inflation is real to where it's hurting people every day. You're not hearing much conversation about that. When people go to the grocery store and it's twice as much as it was two years ago or last year, how do we get that back in, in check? What's causing that? You know, things of this sort that we can fix. So we are the United States of America. There's not a problem too big, and there's nothing one that was not fixable if we put our mind to it. And I, I still I reach back to, to thinking about, you know, we've had difficult times, and I've lived through them in the 60s. It was a horrible decade. I didn't think we'd ever make it. And I keep reading history where Winston Churchill said when he was facing uh, the Nazi Germany coming and attacking uh, England at that time, and he said, don't worry about the Americans. They'll always do the right thing once they've tried everything else. But we're trying everything else. We're allowing people to come and say anything. And First Amendment, we cherish that. And, and, and uh, our Constitution, uh, we take an oath to protect it and defend it. And that's who we are. But it goes through some really tough times where it can be divisive until we become united again. I'm just hoping that we don't divide ourselves so far that it makes it much more difficult to come together as the United States. That's what we're working on. Um, Senator, it's Bill Nygut again. Um, as you watch President Biden uh, try to get traction for his campaign, um, you are well aware of the fact that some of the um, factions that have made up his base in the past, who helped elect him in 2020, are having more reservations than in the past about him. You've got young voters who seem to be troubled by his um support, his complete support for Israel. Um, you have African-American voters who are concerned to some extent that he hasn't done enough to advance um, election reform, voting rights. Um, to what extent do you think President Biden is vulnerable in terms of pulling that coalition together? And how do you you know, you're right. Super Tuesday will tell us a lot. In fact, for that matter, this Saturday, South Carolina's Democratic primary will tell us whether those folks are energized for him as well. Um, but are you going to be watching that closely to see who can bring together that coalition of voters who typically elect well, Democrats? <clears throat> well, let me just tell you, I know it's hard to believe this, but in that identity that you've put for young voters, you're hearing from 30, 40 percent of that generation. There's still a majority, 55 or more percent, that are truly in the middle. They're not getting strung out as far as uh, demanding all the things that you're talking about here, but there's a very vocal point. But the, the climate's real. We're responsible for the climate. We also need energy. We need dispatchable energy 24-7 that runs the greatest country on Earth. That's the United States of America. So there's a balance to be had. The president's not telling his story from the standpoint. If they start talking only to one side, you got to talk to all sides. We have a piece of legislation that we have done, and most of all the legislation during the 117th Congress was done uh, as uh, bipartisanship. And we have that. We should be proud of that. The bottom line is you keep talking about, well, it's all about the climate. It's all about the far left and this and that and the liberals. It's not. It's about the middle, the moderate middle. How do we do that? We're investing more and producing more energy today than ever before. But we're investing more than ever in the history of the world as far as the new technology for the future. So you can walk and chew gum in America. He needs to tell that story more. As far as defending 
the voting rights and all that. The courts have been intervening. The courts have been doing that. And much more needs to be done. The people need to start talking. How do we become more inclusive? Can we change how the primaries? Can we look about how, uh, I mean, how fixed the system is right now? I'm, I'm trying to look for the word here, but basically it's cooked. As far as you have 435 uh, congressional districts, 380 and 390 are already cooked. They're already going to be a Democrat or Republican, no matter who the person is, the ideology is, that's the type of person who's going to be elected. And that's why they've done these crazy gerrymandering, drawing lines to got people that live in certain areas that are going to vote for this type of ideology rather than having more of a centrist approach and a balanced approach. Those things need to be changed. Majority vote, majority, uh, majority, or what we call ranked choice voting, majority voting in primaries would be great because more people who might not have the political backing or the financial support would be able to get in and have a fair chance. Sometimes the cream will rise to the top if you give it a chance. So there's many ways that we can do this, but I think the president needs to tell his story. He has a judiciary, uh, Merrick Garland, I, I know him, he's a fine man. He's going to basically, the rule of law is going to be it, and everyone's saying, well, since he has a D by his name, he must be cooked to the far left. He's not. And uh, we just got to make sure that we don't lose sight of who we are. Orderly transfer of power. Yeah. You can't have a person that believes the only fair election is the one he wins. Tia, let me go a give you a chance to jump in, please. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> Senator Manchin, you were kind of going where I was going to ask you about, because when I hear you talking about, you know, being concerned about extremism on both sides, which you know, a lot of uh, politicians, a lot of people in politics have talked about that extremism. Um, but there's also pushback when it's characterized as something that's a symptom of both parties, because there are people who say, well, Senator Manchin, only one party is questioning the outcome of elections and undermining elections and overturning elections and standing in the way of, uh, you know, rights for LGBTQ people. Ban you know, they're saying it's it's yeah. not the extremism right now in current politics is coming from the right. Yes, there are disagreements on the left, but in a lot of the things you cite are problems with the right. Do you think it's equal? It's an equal problem well, with the far left and the far right right now? Or are you really, think, you know, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I think I mean, just valid what you're saying is who's causing who's concerned the most, who's raising these issues more than the other. I think what happens is when you're trying to solve the problem and you can't get off your far right and far left agenda. So voting rights, it's, it's, it's the bedrock of who we are. I was secretary of state for four years of my, of, uh, in my state, West Virginia. I worked with your secretary of states. I worked with all secretary of states. And this is back in uh, turn, you know, 2000, 2004. We were concerned about how can we get more people to participate. And we would exchange ideas and do everything possible. I think right now, this last election of 2020, was uh, Georgia was the bedrock of democracy. You all counted, you recounted, you did everything. You met every every challenge that people were putting out there. You did it from a party, as a majority party Republican in your state, and the people in your office holders followed the law. They followed the law, and then they still didn't believe it. The far right still did not believe it. The Tea Parties, and those are the groups that basically the perfect is always going to be the enemy good because it didn't have the outcome they desired. 
and you all disputed that. And basically, they stood strong, and they got reelected, even in the face of all the attacks you were getting. So I look at Georgia, and I've just got the greatest admiration for how you all did exactly what needed to be done, making sure that the ballots were counted, and it was a, and it was a fair election. Senator, I'm so, going to jump in because we've got – I know your time is uh, valuable yeah. and limited, and we don't want to uh, uh, extend beyond what you're able to give us. So I want to give Greg Bluestein a chance to ask you a final question. Yeah, Senator. Well, Greg did a, yeah, Greg, you did a great job on Envy. I enjoyed being with you, oh, and you were right you. On, on, on target, buddy. Well, we had a blast. Well, one question I didn't get to yeah. ask you – was that the charges here in Fulton County, here here in Atlanta, against Donald Trump, we've seen them you know, uniting some Republicans, but do you think in the long run that they can turn off swing voters? Do you worry that, that so many, or not worry, but do you see that so many voters will be so concerned by uh, those the, the, those legal challenges that face Donald Trump that they could they could alienate that middle of the, of the electorate that you keep talking about? Well, you know, the people in the middle I, are, are just so concerned and so fed up with this discourse. It's not how they run their lives. So, yes, I'm concerned that they might say my vote doesn't matter. They're just going to do what they want to do anyway. They're going to play hardball and they're going to get their results. And that's what they're going to be fighting for rather than just, hey, count my vote and I'll live with the decisions. At least I got to participate and I knew my vote was counted. That's the most important thing you have in your state or any state that we've got to make sure people understand your vote means the difference of does someone get elected or not. Your vote also has to be assured it's going to be counted fairly and equitable. And that's what we keep striving for all the time. So when a person goes in, you can be assured that you're, make, you're going to make a difference and your voice is going to be heard and your vote is going to be counted. And when they think there's going to chance that certain votes will be thrown out because of a technicality, that someone's looking for a technicality because they don't want to count your vote, that's what scares the bejesus out of me. Well, Senator, um, we are out of time for our conversation with you, um, and we're very grateful for all the time you've given to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, both in the town meeting with uh, Greg and the students from Georgia State, now today on Politically Georgia. We'll be watching March 5th, Super Tuesday, very closely to see how you come out on the other side of that and decide whether or not there's a lane for another candidate right. in the presidential race. And you know what? If you decide either way, we'd love to have you come back and talk to us well, about your decision. But thank you so well, much for being with us today, Senator Manchin. Thank you. Thank you for what you are doing and keeping people in tune and also t- tuned in. Uh, people are looking for the facts, and they'll make their decisions. Believe in the American people. Believe in the citizens of Georgia. They'll make the right decision, what they think is best, as long as they get the proper facts. And I think that's what you all are doing, and I appreciate it very much. Senator Manchin, thank you again so much for being with us. we got to take a break right now, but uh, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. And uh, when we do, we're going to talk about what's happening up in Tia Mitchell's territory in Washington and also Greg Bluestein's visit to see Nikki Haley in Greenville, South Carolina. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Greg Bluestein and Tia Mitchell. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. I'm Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell's with us in Washington, Greg Bluestein's here in the studio. One quick observation. You're going to talk, you saw Nikki Haley at an mm-hmm. event on Saturday on Saturday in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I saw the long interview she did on Meet the Press mm-hmm. yesterday, and I thought about a couple of interesting things. Between your Joe Manchin town meeting, where he talked thoughtfully in more general terms about what we need to get to as a country, but he did so in a very thoughtful way. And then Nikki Haley yesterday, who talked about issues, actual issues, and uh, her take on issues, and I thought, this is very different from the way we're thinking about politics these days, where a Donald Trump, oh, he just he yells, he, uh, he, he attacks his enemies, there are some thoughtful people actually involved in politics right now. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see how far Nikki Haley can go in this race. You also alluded to the possibility that even if she loses South Carolina, she continues the campaign, which yeah. is not a surprise coming from someone who's who's competing in that February twenty fourth primary. But still, um, we have been we have been painting that as a do or die moment from her for her campaign, and it might be one of those. But she is holding out the possibility that she could continue through Super Tuesday. And how was the event in Greenville? You know, Trump has declared the race for Republican nomination is over. Joe Biden has declared the race for the Republican nomination is over. With so many people ready to move on, Nikki Haley sent the signal that she's not. And there was, a, you know, it was a big crowd. This was in a suburb of Greenville, Malden. Um, a couple hundred people were there. Uh, a, a member, of a U.S. House Representative Ralph Norman, the only Republican member of Congress in South Carolina to endorse Nikki Haley's campaign, a couple of state House members, uh, but really just people, right? Just rank and file people. It was not a Trump rally. There's, there's not thousands of people. There weren't merchandise stands everywhere. This wasn't a big, huge to do. Um, but it was a, it was the longest and most the sharpest speech I've seen yet from Nikki Haley in terms of not just sharpening her her her, her stances on issues, but also going after Trump. Mm. Also saying that you know Trump is basically um, you know up in the air on on so many issues that he will be a distraction for the country if he's elected. Uh, on, on a number of different, on questioning his mental fortitude, on challenging him to hold a debate with her. That She said that's the best test of your mental sharpness, your acuity, is standing on stage with me, Nikki Haley. <laughs> and so it, it was it was an eye-opening debate, uh, uh, event for me. Christian Welker, uh, Tia, tried to get uh, Nikki Haley over and over again on Meet the Press yesterday to answer the question of whether whether South Carolina was make or break for her. Did she have to win South Carolina or drop out of the race. And she said over and over again, I need to do better in South Carolina than I did first in Iowa, then in New Hampshire. And she did suggest that uh, if all that happens, if she should get uh, better numbers in South Carolina, uh, she will go on to Super Tuesday. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear from what Nikki Haley is projecting that she doesn't plan on getting out by, before Super Tuesday. Um, you know, if 
if she the fact that she's forging ahead in South Carolina with every indication that she will not be able to carry her home state, um, it doesn't make sense for her to to do that and then get out. You know, so it's like she's in for the long haul. And um, I think what she's trying to do is make herself. I, I know she's saying that she's in it and the math is of the math. She can beat Trump over the long haul. I really don't think that's what they're setting up. I think they're setting her up as the primary alternative if something happens and Trump goes away. But she does that by being the one who's still there. Um, one other quick question about Nikki Haley before we move on, uh, Greg. Um, we talk about Super Tuesday over and over. It's Tuesday, March 5th. It's super because there are 16 states that will cast primary ballots on that day. And it's important to us because our <clears throat> primary follows a week later. Now, just think about Nikki Haley sticking it out till Super Tuesday. If she really collapses in that day, it's unlikely that voters in Georgia would get a chance to uh, cast a ballot for her. And the Republican Party here has already uh, said they're all in for Donald Trump in any case. Yeah, it's really interesting what's happening in, among Georgia Republican elected officials. There's not a stampede yet for Trump. But there is that sense that 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 you know pendulum has swung over to his camp for sure. You got David, you got David, you got Josh McCoon, the Georgia GOP chair, and a number of other senior Republican state party leaders saying, you know, the race is over. Um, you have Rich McCormick, who was Governor DeSantis's really his most prominent supporter in Georgia. Moments after New Hampshire was called. McCormick puts out a statement saying, I'm, I'm in behind Donald Trump. Nikki Haley should essentially drop out of the race. And you have dozens of state lawmakers, many of whom were really reluctant to take sides this early in the race, all come out in the last couple of weeks saying they're on Team Trump. At the same time, you're still seeing that hesitancy. If you listen to Governor Kemp, if you listen to other establishment, mainstream Republicans uh, who are not huge fans of Donald Trump, you're, hearing, you're, not, you're not hearing them say bad words about Donald Trump. You're not hearing them criticize him anymore, but they're, they're saying, hey, we've got a long way to go. March, the Super Tuesday is a couple of weeks away, more than a month away, and Georgia's right after that. All right. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to watch as South Carolina first unfolds. By the way, uh, Democrats vote in South Carolina's Democratic primary on Saturday, the first test for uh, whether Joe Biden can pull together his coalition of voters. All right. Tia. Lots happening up on your beat in Washington right now. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, of course, there are ongoing conversations between Republicans and Democrats who are optimistic they can, for the first time in decades, um, come together and possibly pass a bipartisan measure on immigration reform. That hasn't happened since 1986 when uh, Ronald Reagan was president on the House side. Mike Johnson has said it's dead on arrival because Donald Trump doesn't want it. And in the House, even while the Senate is talking about it, um, the Republicans are set to drop an impeachment bill on, on um, Mayorkas, uh, who they say has failed in taking care of the border. Yeah, so... As you mentioned, there's a lot going on, but in some ways there's nothing going on. <laughs> um, but we'll see how things shake out this week. Um, 
again, the House is planning. They have released the draft articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. The question is whether they actually bring it to a vote in committee um, this week. But it could happen. Um, People like Marjorie Taylor Greene have said they've been promised it'll happen. And um, we know Marjorie Taylor Greene's not someone that's going to let them not follow through on that promise after a while. Um, The Board of Security measure. It was interesting because over the weekend, so much talk about this measure. President Biden put out a really strongly worded statement that basically said, Congress, give me some power and I'll shut the border down. Um, And then you have. Senate Republicans, particularly Oklahoma Senator Langford, who's one of the chief negotiators of border security, he's going around saying we need to get it done and resisting the calls from Trump and House Republicans to block the measure. And so there's all this talk about what will or won't happen with the bill, but we don't have a bill. (laughs) So it's like it's already dead on arrival in the House. If you listen to Speaker Johnson again, Donald Trump, as you mentioned, is putting a lot of pressure on House Republicans, but we don't even have a bill to to really vet. Yeah, isn't that a truism in Washington? There's a lot going on, but there's nothing going on. <laughs> um, you know, it strikes me, Tia, that we were just talking about Nikki Haley, who in her campaign speeches blames both Republicans and Democrats for inaction on uh, border security and an immigration overhaul. We're hearing the same from Georgia Democrats. I mean, Senator Ossoff just put out an, a statement uh, a few moments ago, rem- reminding folks of his of his calls, and he's criticizing Trump for sabotaging, in his words, bipartisan efforts to strengthen border security. But it also goes back and says, you know, goes back to the 2022 campaign where, where Ossoff is out there on the campaign trail with Senator Warnock saying that Democrats and Republicans are to blame for not getting together, not getting their acts together and finding some, some, some sort of compromise solution. Yeah, and... Again, I kind of goes back to what I said for for when Senator Manchin, what I asked him, because right now in the Senate, it is bipartisan. And if the bill is produced and gets put on the Senate floor, it's likely to get bipartisan support. Yes, some of the most conservative senators might say it doesn't go far enough. Some of the most progressive Senate Democrats might say it goes too far. So you'll get some no's. But it looks like, particularly because President Biden has asked for it, this is what Republicans in the House and the Senate have been asking for for decades. What is being um, what is being projected as part of the border security measure is exactly what Republicans said they wanted when they rejected the last proposal during the Obama years. The last proposal was reform of the immigration system and Republicans said, we don't want reforms. We want border security. This measure would be border security. And now again, we have Republicans saying it's not what we want, but that's more in the house. Just like the last measure Mm -hmm. passed in a bipartisan fashion in the Senate, it was the house and house conservatives who ultimately blocked it from moving forward. Um, I, again, it's it's easy to both sides it, but right now it is Republicans in the House, quite frankly, that are standing in the way 
of uh, passing border security legislation in this moment? You know, Greg, uh, there's all this talk that uh, Trump is so far ahead in terms of polling. He won Iowa, won New Hampshire. The momentum is there. He's going to be the general election nominee. So there's all this talk that we already have a Biden-Trump general election campaign underway. And you really see that in terms of this border uh, negotiation. On one hand, you've got Donald Trump very openly saying, don't support it. It's not good enough. Plus, he doesn't want to give Biden a victory. victory. And on the other hand, Biden, realizing he's got to respond forcefully, comes out on Saturday night in Columbia, South Carolina. He said, I will shut down the border the day that you pass this legislation. There it is. The general election politics of the border playing out in front of our eyes. And we're seeing more Democrats speak out, too. And that's one of the reasons why. Biden's facing the pressure. This is no longer, I don't know if it ever was, but it's no longer exclusively a Republican talking point on the campaign trail like we've heard from Republicans. I mean, even when Governor Kemp is going on Fox News over the weekend and saying, I stand with Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, right? You're, you're hearing more and more and more of, of, of Georgia Republicans and Republicans and other battleground states equate failed policies with Joe Biden. And it's becoming an issue so much so that, that Joe Biden is looking for some sort of win and there might be executive action he can take without Congress, right? There might be something else he can do without Congress. But that could also, uh, we're already hearing from Democrats here in Georgia saying taking that executive action could pave the way for Donald Trump to expand on it if he is somehow elected. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this plays out. Uh, so, Tia, uh, nothing may be happening in a big way right now, but it's certainly going to be uh, happening sooner rather than later. Why don't we do this? Let's get our final break of the show out of the way right now, because we have waiting in the wings um, a guest who I'm really, I know we're all really looking forward to uh, talking with. Um, Emory University professor of African-American studies, Pearl Dow, is with us. She has written extensively on the arc of black women in public life and politics, including writing about uh, Stacey Abrams. So we'll talk about that. And we also want to get her take on where Fonnie Willis stands since she has to run for re-election in November, too. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut along with Tia Mitchell and Greg Bluestein. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. You'll get all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. AJC.com slash start. Tia Mitchell is with us in Washington. Greg Bluestein is in the studio. And so is Professor Pearl Dow. 
uh, professor of African-American studies at Emory University. We're so glad to have you. You know, Andre Gillespie, who has been a friend of this show for as long as I can remember, has always uh, raved about you. She's the reason you came to Emory, I think. She is. Good morning. Um, thank you for having me. Yes, Andra's a good friend, and she recruited me. So um, I did let her know this morning I was going to be here, so she was excited. Oh, well, we're glad you're here. Let's talk about you. You're um, one of the books that you're known for is, and I want to read the title because I want to get it right The Radical Imagination of Black Women Ambition, Politics, and Power. And just to set it up briefly, you say that at one point some years back, you'd read a couple of articles about how much power white women had in determining outcomes of elections, of organizing uh, in, in you know, for public life. And you said, no, 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 no. It's black women who really have a, a, a lot of power. And one of the things you say is that elite black women have a unique political ambition that compels them to move beyond service to seek office. Stacey Abrams, one of your prime examples. Exactly. Um, and so what I was interested in is really exploring um, and pushing back against that narrative. Um, prior to writing this book, I studied black politics broadly in elections. And by doing that, I knew the role that black women played in not just only voting, but running for office. Um, I had also seen this as a young person growing up in Savannah, Georgia, where I saw black women such as Edna Jackson, who became Savannah's first black woman mayor. And I knew that there was a group of black women who were very critical and engaged within their communities. They ran for office. They won. Um, and then there were also some of these women also had opportunities to move up the political chain. Mm -hmm. um, but they chose not to. And so because of that, that made me think, okay, there's a story here that need to be told about um, these women who run for office, how they win, and not only how they win, but how they make the decisions to stay either in a state legislative seat or a city council seat instead of moving up. And so with that, I decided or thought about the idea that why are they running, particularly when we know that it takes a lot to run for office. Many of these women did not have the resources that their white male counterparts, or even white women may have, or even black men have, but they still ran. Um, many of these women run knowing they're going to face um, a very unique type of racist, sexist ridicule, um, but they still run. Um, and so why? And then not only why, but what contributes to their ability to win? So that was the genesis of the book. Tia? And the book is coming out this fall, right? It's out, Tia. Oh, it's Tia, already you're out. in the book. I'm in the book. Listen, I knew I got like one of the early copies, yeah. so I wasn't. So it came out last fall. That's yes. what it is. It came out last fall, so it's already out. I have my copy in my hand, and yes, as Bill noted, um, I was uh, brief. I was um, briefly mentioned in the book, but we talked a lot. You interviewed me for the book. And because you wanted to talk about my experience covering black women in politics. And I thought it was an interesting conversation we had because we talked about something that I noticed, which is the sensitivities black women have to how they're portrayed in the media, black uh, women elected officials, you know, on one hand, they want to speak out about 
injustices or speak out about things they're passionate about, but they're also very sensitive to being labeled as angry or not intelligent or not articulate. And so there's a hypersensitivity that I perceive sometimes when I cover Black women in politics. But what else surprised you as you did interviews for this book? Well, I interviewed, I believe it's about 36 women, including yourself. Um, most of them um, are politicians, persons who either currently hold office or held office. And um, there were several things that really, really surprised me or struck me throughout the book. Um, one of the things that really was a challenge, I think the women expressed, was really the pain sometimes of when they were publicly rebuked. Um and how it happened, and many of the women that talked about being publicly rebuked, it often happened after they ran for election or they won, and it usually happened in a very public space in which someone attempted to criticize um, where they were sitting or what they were doing um, and attempted to embarrass them. Um, and the pain they had in their voice, even though they were like, okay, I kind of expected it, but then I didn't expect it. Um, that was something that um, that stuck with me. Also, what stuck with me um, was the confidence that many of these women had um, when they were running for office. Um, many of them were extremely, com- all of them were c- extremely committed, but they were extremely determined to work hard and understanding their position as black women. Um, they understood that they had to knock more doors. They had to, um, even if they're with the fundraising, even if their dollar amount was not going to be as high, if they were not going to get a gift for $1,000. They knew that they need to have multiple gifts of $50 or $100. Um, and so there was an extremely high uh, sense of work value and work ethic that they had. And that work ethic was something that they learned early on in their life, being black women. And they talked a lot about that as well, about how what they learned in their careers transcends, transcended to the political career. Um, and so those were some of the things that, that were struck out to me. We're here with Pearl Dow, the author of The Radical Imagination of Black Women. One of the things you argue in the book is that measuring the success of, of black women is not just about wins and losses, right? It, it's about the, the influence they wield in politics and policy at the state capitol, so how do you see that playing into this 2024 race? Well, you know, black women are often the go-to for particularly Democratic Party when it comes to doing the actual legwork, um, particularly doing the work before the election cycle, the get out the vote, um, the mobilizing, the informing people of what the issues are. Um, and that goes back to their position within the community that even outside of an election cycle, these are the women who are seen as the go-to people when there's an issue that needs to be addressed. These are the women who are providing support to the community. And so in many ways it becomes a natural fit, but then also it becomes a position that um, these women talk about is they're often being taken advantage of. That is an expectation that they're going to do the work without the party support. And so they fill the void of what many times the party is not doing on behalf of um, Democratic candidates. Um, let's talk about Fonnie Willis, who, in addition to being a prosecutor that we all think of right now in terms of the Trump conspiracy uh, indictments, but also is a politician. She's up for re-election in November and now is under fire um, for the uh 
alleged relationship. We, we've seen some evidence of it with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor uh, she hired. How do you view the way Fonnie Willis is dealing with the response right now to all of this? She thinks it's racist. Um, and I wonder how you interpret what's happening with her and what it means as she tries to organize for her own reelection in November. Well, I think before these allegations came about, we saw um, these efforts to discredit her um, when the charges first came out against um, Donald Trump and the large number of co-conspirators. Um, there was effort to claim that she had overstepped um, that it was politically motivated. And when we see these type of terms used against black women in leadership, it's really hearkening to stereotypes that black women are um, emotional or hypersensitive or um, not um, credible. Um, but then in this moment, we see that there are allegations um, in which there's this slow drip of possible some truth to the allegations, which um, does not help or it adds to this to these stereotypes and these ideas that were already out there. And so moving into an election cycle, it will be a challenge for her because in her role, um, there is a question about credibility. There's a question about honesty, expectation of that um, for anybody who's in that position. But now we're amplifying it with the fact that she's a black woman. And so she does have a long, um, a long hard road to um, win re-election. Tia? So along those same lines with um, and I know, you know, you're an observer of politics. I guess we should since we're giving shout outs, Professor Kanisha Grant at Howard University is who connected you and me <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Um, so I know you're a student of 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 all of these issues. Um, when it comes to Fonnie Willis. I think that as she wraps up her defense of herself in, you know, sexism, misogyny, racism. But as you mentioned, there are trickles of information that indicate there could be some truthfulness, at least to the core allegation that she is romantically involved. My question is, what would be your advice? Because on one hand, like Fonnie, you raise valid points, but also, and I don't, D.A. Willis, you raise valid points, but also, D.A. Willis, there could be some missteps you've made that also are valid. So what would be your advice to her in this situation? She probably needs to find Olivia Pope. <laughs> she needs, um, I would think that she needs to get ahead of this as sooner than later. Um, if there is some truth to this, um, I know it's a difficult situation because... Um, Wade is going through a divorce, so there's a question of adultery. Um, but she needs to get ahead of this as soon as possible in stating as much as she can about um, what is true, but also that there is no impropriety in her doing her job. Um, and if she can draw a line of demarcation between her actual job and her duties with the case, um, she has to do that sooner than allow the media to do it for her. And even before this, Professor Dow, we saw we saw other sorts of attacks that were completely unjustified, right? We saw attacks from Donald Trump alleging that there was a relationship with a drug dealer. We've seen death threats. We've seen then the, the, she and her office have to take extraordinary measures uh, to, to keep themselves safe and and 
surrounded by armed security guards at all times. I know it's a high-profile case, but do you see a level of racism in those attacks as well, even before this Nathan Wade stuff? Uh, absolutely. Um, the type of language um, trying to associate her or other black leaders with um, drug dealers, criminality, goes back to these old stereotypes that black women are promiscuous, that black women are untrustworthy, unclean, um, lazy. Um, but yet these are the women who actually took care of white homes and white children. Um, and so it's a hearkening and a, a reminder that these are who these women really are, regardless of their credentials. They're not to be trusted. We're, we're almost out of time, but one very quick uh, question. Um, it is nevertheless, you talk about not just women who want to run for office, but who organize voters. It is black women who are going to play an enormous role in whether Joe Biden can win a second term in office. Yes? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, I think we're going to see um, the, the continued work that black women do, um, particularly the early work, right? That early work of saying this is why this election is important. And it will um, continue to you know, ramp up the closer we get to the election cycle. But black women will definitely be critical in not just only informing voters, but trying to get them out. Pearl Dow, we're unfortunately out of time. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Will you come back and join oh, us thank you uh, for other Politically Georgias? We'd love to stay in touch with you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.